It is such a joy for me today uh, to have one of my personal good friends. So you have good friends in life that you've done life together. You've watched each other's kids grow up. Uh, you've gotten old together. He still has most of his hair. I was going to say you've lost hair together. But today, Pastor Ed Moore, some of you, if you've been coming for a while, you've heard things about him. He's like a living legend. Most of them are hysterical. You're going to hear him preach. But outside the pulpit, oh my goodness, he's a nut. For the glory of God, he's a nut. And that's why he's in New York City. He fits very well. But Pastor Ed and his wife, Anna, we've known each other for almost 30 years now. I was the youth and music guy with a full head of hair. And he was the singles guy at the same church in South Carolina. And uh, he's a dear brother. He went five years before I came here to be a part of this church plant. He went to New York City on purpose to go there and took a church in Queens, Bayside, a part of Queens, an older church, no parking lot, very difficult, handful of older people, and has a heart for the city. He loves Jesus. He and his wife love people. He preaches the gospel as well as anyone I know. But more than a pulpit ministry. It's one thing to have a powerful pulpit presence and be true to God's word. And I hope men would. But you got to love people. And outside the pulpit, you've got to be willing to get your hands dirty and your heart broken with real people. And they do. I mean, they, have, they use their home for ministry and hospitality as well as anyone I've ever seen. While raising four kids that love Jesus Christ in a place, you know... So often if we're not careful, some of the magazines that are out there and Christians that are blogging, you'd think you have to have a a piece of land, fences, farm animals, and your own herbs to have godly kids. Guess what? God needs Christians in concrete in the city to live it out. And you can actually see God save your kids. He has four kids that grew up there. I mean, their address is Clearview Expressway. That tells you something. You don't see cows and animals there. It's, it's city. And his four kids love the Lord. And they caught that from mom and dad and their passion for the gospel and for people as they've seen them minister. Ed invests his life in young men and young women. They do internships. He knows how to disciple. He knows how to love people uh, as well as anybody that I've ever, ever seen. Also, they rank up there with me now that I'm in my 50s and have been here There's only a few pastors I know that will stay at the same church, which is what I've tried to do here. I've watched Ed do that and not just go from church to church to church to church. He's not still at that church because it's all been easy. He has stayed at the same church for 25 years, just pouring his life into and his wife pouring her life into that body. Good days, bad days, people that hurt them deeply, people that love them and just keep on doing it. And lastly, they wouldn't want me to tell you this. But I think it's a great instructive moment for me and for them. The other thing about Ed and Anna is these were, these were some of the first people with skin on them. You can read stuff in the Bible and be struck by it. And then when you see it lived out, you're never the same. Second Corinthians chapter 9 talks about the grace of giving. And I'm talking about giving away your money. And some of you know, if you've been here a while, I love to give. I, I've tried to do this. Guess where I saw this and learned this first? Ed and Anna Moore. And giving away their money. I was in my final year of seminary, living in a trailer, two little babies. Church is paying me a whopping $10,000 a year. And I'm working landscaping on Thursdays. And we still don't have enough to pay for seminary and buy food. And I'm praying. I'm praying, God, provide for this last year. I'm trying to get out debt-free. 
And Ed comes to my office. He had just finished ahead of me, finished his MDiv. And he knocked on my door and he said, Anna and I try to stretch. This is how I've taught you. But here's a man that's lived this. We try to stretch beyond our tithe, 10%, and keep giving more to people in need. And we want to help you and Vicki uh, as, you, as you finish up in seminary. Now, I have to be honest. I just thought, oh, isn't that sweet? What can they do? They live in a duplex. He's an apartment complex manager. He just finished school. He drives a Chevy Nova. The ceiling is falling down. The lining is falling down. The inside is shredded from his two golden retrievers, Bob and Dave. You know, maybe they'll give us $25 a month. That is so sweet. Because there are people in the church, and let me say this, there are people in the church who so often would come up to me and say, hey, let us know if there's any way we can help you and Vicky. That's an awkward moment. What am I supposed to say? Yes, give us money today. And they never followed up. Whereas Ed came, he didn't say, let us know if we can help you. He said, we want to help you. And so the first time he came to my office and flipped the, he's a funny man. He just stuck his head in the door and just went, and the check went, landed on my desk. He walked away and I opened it, $350. And he did that month after month after month until I got out of seminary. Now I can read God's word and I do, but I'll never forget that. And I've tried to pay it forward. And we've tried to live that way now. Just give more, give more, give more. I could go on. There's so much I could tell about Ed. I love him dearly. He's impacted my life so greatly. But I'll just conclude with this. He's been the pastor at North Shore Baptist Church now for almost 25 years. He's a huge Bulldog fan as he played football at the University of Georgia under Coach Vince Dooley and graduated from there. He also finished up his Master of Divinity at my alma mater, uh, Columbia Biblical Seminary. He's been married to Anna for 30 years. He has four wonderful children. And this summer launched into the exciting world of grandchildren with each of his sons having their first babies. So help me welcome Pastor Ed Moore. Well, I am so um, encouraged by that introduction on one hand. Uh, On the other hand, I am uh, slightly chagrined uh, because now I have lost my reward. Uh, (laughs) Left hand pretty much knows what the right hand's doing now. So (laughs) thankful for the opportunity to be here and thankful for the 30 years that Anna and I have known Brad and Vicky. What he didn't mention is that I sang in his choir. Um, he was the choir leader, and I can still remember the bass line on uh, "I've been saved, I've been newborn." I was I was anchoring that bass section. So we go way back, and it is a high honor to be here. I don't have to tell you; you know already that you have the best pastor in the world. But he's not only a pastor of this congregation; he is a pastor's pastor. He is the one that we call when we don't know what to do. So you are, you are a blessed people, and I'm very thankful to be here with you today. Well, my assigned topic today is the church and its glorious message. Uh, it's quite simply a thematic way of addressing the topic of evangelism. Uh, evangelism uh, means good news from its Greek root, the 
word euangelion, which is the correct Greek mispronunciation of the word. And from it we get the uh, derivatives of evangelism or evangelist. It means the good news. Um, it's a sanctified or a sanitized way of doing what the world calls proselytization. In other words, telling unsaved people how they can be saved, giving them the good news of salvation that comes through Jesus with a view of persuading them to repent and to believe in Christ and to embrace him as Savior and Lord. Now, today we're not going to be talking about any methods of evangelism. I appreciate very much the series that the church is going through right now, Church Matters. And I really believe that a healthy church should be joyfully active in telling unsaved people the gospel. So, here's my assignment as I understand it. I am to stand before you today, I am to open the Bible, and I am to try to influence you to be more active in sharing your faith. And I accept that challenge, and I'm honored with the opportunity to do so. However... I am not going to take a conventional approach. And here's what I mean by a conventional approach. Every message on evangelism that I have ever preached or ever heard has had at least one of the following elements used to motivate the congregation. And most of the sermons that I have heard have had multiple motivations. Now, I am in no way being critical of these conventional approaches that I am about to cite. Uh, I have benefited from them in the past. I have preached them in the past. I will probably preach messages on evangelism in the future, and I will use these motivations. They are all valid. They are all scriptural. But tell me, have you not heard this? We are commanded to evangelize. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. As you go, make disciples. I will make you fishers of men. Why do we do it? Well, because we are commanded to do it. Why do we do it? Well, we do it because of the brilliant logic of Romans chapter 10. How shall they hear without a preacher? Well, they can't hear without a preacher, so therefore preach. Or there's the promise, the promise of beautiful feet from Isaiah 52 and Romans 10. Then there is looking at the example, the example of Jesus speaking with Zacchaeus or Jesus speaking with the woman at the well. Or there's the example of the apostles, specifically the apostle Paul and the burden that he had. I wish that I myself could be accursed for my kinsmen according to the flesh, that we must have that burden for the lost. And then there's always the challenge, the challenge to be an equipped apologist, be ready to give an answer to anybody who asks you the reason of the hope within you. And not only are we to be good apologists, but our demeanor matters. We are to do it with meekness and with fear. Or as they used to say in the 1950s, if you are going to win some, you must be winsome. Then there's always the watchman on the wall with the bloody hands who failed to warn his friends sufficiently. There's usually some kind of a reminder about the Apostle Paul who was not ashamed of the gospel. And if we deny Christ before men, he will deny us before his Father who is in heaven. And then it is very important how you live your life. You are to glorify God so that they can see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. 
Now, that is not an exhaustive list, but I think you get the idea. And allow me for a moment, please, to be redundant and to say that I give a hearty amen to each of the above. We are commissioned to go. We They will not hear without a preacher. Jesus and the apostles did set the example. We should be prepared and respectful. We are responsible watchmen. We must never be ashamed and your life has to match your message. Never lose those blessed truths. They are foundational. However, this morning, I would like us to consider evangelism from a slightly different perspective. I want us to think about evangelism in terms of restoration. And by that I mean we live in a fallen world filled with broken people. And you know that because you live in this fallen world and you are one of those broken people. Or as the great theologian Jimmy Buffett said, we are the people our parents warned us about. We know what it means to be broken. We are all in need of restoration. In case you're wondering, yes, I did pay for this haircut. And no, you may not make fun of it. I'm sitting in the barber shop this past week. My barber, who speaks precious little English, is getting instructions from me. And I'm saying, leave me something on top so that I can move it around. So that I can cover off the bald spot. Now, why do I say that? I say that because I'm not a quitter like your pastor and like C.J. Mahaney. I'm going to fight this thing. I'm going to go for the comb over if I have to. (laughs) And meanwhile, I kid you not, someone who speaks his native tongue is going to be his next customer, sits directly behind him. He turns his head as he's cutting my hair and begins to have a conversation with his friend. And meanwhile, I'm looking in the mirror and I'm saying, suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. Leave me, leave me something to cover the bald spots here. We need things to go back to the way they were before they were broken. We need restoration. Entropy has an undefeated record. Fairy tale endings are reserved for fairy tales. You will make a very good living if you can replace a hip or a roof or a fender and make it look like new. All of the king's horses and all of the king's men are busy trying to put the Humpty Dumpties of the world back together again. And why is it? You know why it is. The reason that things are broken is because of sin. Through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men. We live in a sin-cursed world where things break. Uh, They break down. People get sick. They die. Job put it this way. Man born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. And I'm not just talking about our physical bodies. Our skills diminish. Our finances evaporate. Our relationships explode. Our marriages deteriorate. And our emotional condition becomes very fragile. And the place where we need restoration the most is where we feel it the least. And that is in our relationship with God. Because by nature, we are enemies of God. We are estranged from His presence. And we, ourselves, perpetually make things worse through our habitual unrepentant sin. And so when I speak about evangelism, I'm not talking about the restoration of our hair or our marriages. I am talking about restoration with God. The purpose of the gospel is restoration with God. Christ suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Kings chapter 8. 
And I would like to illustrate this doctrine of restoration in the first six verses. Father in heaven, please now empower me as I preach. Enable me, dear Lord, to have great joy and compassion for the people to whom I am speaking. I pray, Lord, you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the words to say. I pray for the people as they are listening that they will be very interested in what is being taught. Lord, I pray that we will come under conviction that we might be doers of the word when we leave this place. And so, Lord, not as a perfunctory uh, element to the message, but, Lord, as a genuine cry from my heart, Lord, to your throne through Christ, would you please bless the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Second Kings chapter 8. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. Let's just stop right there. Uh, this woman is commonly known as the Shunammite woman. She lived in a place called Shunam. Uh, We're introduced to her back in 2 Kings chapter 4. This woman was a very hospitable woman. She knew that the prophet Elisha would be passing through that region frequently. So she built a room on the top of her house so that Elisha, when he passed by, would have a place to stay. Elisha wanted to return the favor and he asked the woman, is there anything that I can do for you? The woman said, I have everything that I need. I don't want anything. But Elisha's servant, a man by the name of Gehazi, said... I know what this woman needs. She's getting up in years and her husband's already old. They don't have any children. And so Elisha says, a year from now, you're going to have a child. And a year later, along comes a little boy. The little boy grows up and one day the little boy is out in the field with his father. And all of a sudden, his head starts to hurt. He goes in and he sits on his mother's lap and he dies right there in her arms. She takes the little boy, she carries him up the steps to Elisha's room. Elisha is not there. Elisha is 16 miles away at Mount Carmel at the time. She lays the little boy on the bed and she goes to Mount Carmel and she makes a request of Elisha. Elisha probably could not walk or run as fast as Gehazi. And so Elisha sends his staff with Gehazi and says, go back to the boy Lay the staff across the boy. Don't greet anyone as you go. So Gehazi runs ahead. Elisha and the woman go back. And Elisha walks into the room where the boy is. He prays for the boy in a very unusual way. And the boy is raised to life. And the boy is presented back to his mother. That is the woman that is being referred to here. And Elisha comes to her in this text and says, Listen, the people of God have been rebellious. One of the covenant curses against the people of God is that there will be drought and famine. And these people have been so sinful that there is going to be a seven-year drought. Now, you'll remember back in 1 Kings chapter 17, there was a drought that lasted three and a half years and people were dying as a result of this. You cannot stick around for this drought. It is going to be seven years. Go wherever you can. And what did the woman do? Well, she left and she took off and she went to the land of the Philistines. Verse 2, so the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. 
At the end of seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. In other words, she gets back and her property and her home have been confiscated, probably by the government. Nothing ever changes. She goes to the, she goes to the king and she wants her property back. Now, when we get to verse 4, there is a shift in the scene I cannot explain verse 4. I do not understand verse 4. I can simply tell you what it says. Now the king, the king that is being referred to here is King Jehoram. He is wicked. He is the grandson of Ahab. He is the grandson of Jezebel. And the apple does not fall far from the tree. He is an exceedingly wicked king. Now the king was talking with Gehazi. Uh, Gehazi is no longer with Elisha because he is no longer in the ministry. And the reason he's no longer in the ministry is because he's a leper. And the reason that he is a leper is because he tried to extort money out of a man by the name of Naaman. And now he is a leper for the rest of his life. He has been kicked out of the ministry. But the king wants to speak with Gehazi. And notice this. This is just, this is just, this is baffles me. It baffles me. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God saying, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. That is just bizarre. I mean, it would be as if one day President Obama, just out of nowhere, were to say, please get Al Mohler to come in here. I want to talk to him. Uh, Dr. Mohler, could you please tell me all of the great works of God that have happened in the United States, all of the great revivals that have happened here, I would be very interested in hearing that. That would be bizarre, but this is even more bizarre. Why does Jehoram, this wicked king, want to know these things? Because he himself is wicked. Furthermore, because the man that he's talking to is now a defrocked clergyman. Furthermore, some of these miracles he witnessed himself. We know of at least two occasions where his life was saved or he himself was rescued by the miracle working of Elisha, the most prolific miracle worker in the Bible apart from Jesus Christ. And the reason... I think most of all that is so bizarre is that this king, Jehoram, actually had ordered Elisha dead. So why in the world does he want to know these things? I don't know. All I know is that one day he had nothing better to do than to call for Gehazi to give him this information. Verse 5. And while, W-H-I-L-E, At the same exact moment, while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, paint the picture in your mind's eye, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, here is the woman and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. To life. Now, when you see the word behold in the scripture, it means to try as best you can to envision it. We don't know if it is in a throne room, we don't know if it's outside. We know that Gehazi, as a leper, is probably not in close proximity to the king, but he's answering the king's question. We don't know everything that he said, but maybe we can guess as to some of the things that Gehazi said. You want me to tell you what Elisha has done. 
where do I start? When the mantle fell from Elijah's chariot to him, he hit the waters of the Jordan River and it parted and he walked across on dry ground. When he got to Jericho, the water was bitter. He put salt in it and it became sweet. As he was walking to Bethel, some children came out and they were mocking him because he was bald. Maybe I shouldn't have. And two she-bears came out of the, out of the woods and mauled the 42 youths. Uh, there was the situation that you yourself know, King, as we were in the desert and we were about to die of thirst where Elisha prayed and the waters came. You know the story of how our city was besieged and Elisha, through his miracle-working power, blinded an entire army. Uh, there was another instance where there was some stew that was being cooked and people were going to to die because there was poison in the stew and he put flour in the stew and the stew was healed. There was another instance where an axe head fell into the river Jordan and Elisha waved a stick over it and the axe head floated. King, I could tell you a million stories about Elisha, but the wildest story about him that I have ever, ever witnessed personally is that there was this boy back in Shunem. And I'm going to tell you, King, he wasn't sick. He wasn't injured. He wasn't comatose. He was dead. He was blue. He was purple. He was stiff. He was dead. And Elisha went in, laid on top of this boy, and raised this boy to life. He was dead, and he came... That's him right there. At the moment when he's telling the story about the woman and the boy... The woman and the boy walk in. Let's read the rest of the story. And the king asked the woman and she told him. And so the king appointed an official for her saying, restore. Restore. That's our word for the day. Restoration. Restore all that was hers. Together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. And so she experiences complete restoration of her house and her land and its produce. Now, what we have to ask is, how did this come about and what in the world does it have to do with evangelism? In other words, we know the end, that is that she got everything back, but what were the means that God employed to accomplish his end and what can we draw from this? What principles can we accurately draw from the text which can be applied to our evangelistic efforts? And I have three of them. Number one, our glorious message is always controlled by the design of providence. Our glorious message is always controlled by the design of providence. And you say, what is providence? And I say it is the capital of Rhode Island. And... Uh, I taught Peter LaRuffa that joke 20 years ago. He has no original material. Uh, everything, you know, so I, I've given to him. Now, what is providence? Let me read you the abstract of principles from the Southern Baptist Convention, Article 4. God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events, yet so as not in any wise to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures, end quote. Providence is God's absolute control over all things. 
It's God orchestrating the movement of the largest planet and God orchestrating the movement of the smallest molecule and everything in between. God is sovereign and he rules over all. It was 20 years and three months ago that you preached in my pulpit in North Shore Baptist Church and you taught our congregation that God has a lock on all things, that he limits, orders, and controls everything. Or as the Westminster Confession says, he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. And there is no such thing as luck. If luck exists, then the God of the Bible does not. Nothing is random and nothing is left to chance. Everything is preordained. Everything is by design. Providence is a friend to restoration. And so let's take that and bring it into our story. What are the mathematical chances that after seven years, approximately 2,550 days, that on the exact day, at the exact hour, at the exact moment, when Gehazi was telling the story of the Shunammite woman and her son to the king that the Shunammite woman and her son would walk into the king's presence. What are the mathematical odds of that happening? It wasn't choreographed in any way. Gehazi himself was shocked by this. What are the odds? Are they a hundred to one? A million to one? A billion to one? So you're telling me there's a chance. The, the, the odds are insurmountable. But I will say that the chances of this happening are 100% if God is the one who is directing traffic and the chances are zero if he is not. But in this particular case, he was. And providence is instrumental in restoration. Now the doctrine of providence as it relates to evangelism is sometimes viewed as an enemy by those who are opposed to Reformed theology. Uh, What they will say to us is this. Since you believe that God has an elect and that whatever will be will be and that that roster of the elect cannot be changed, therefore, logically speaking, you should see no need to evangelize. In other words, providence gives you Calvinist an excuse to be silent. Well, sadly, for all practical purposes, often their accusations are backed up by our lack of evangelistic activity. And to that I say, shame on us. But what I want to do this morning is I want to submit to you that providence, uh, the sovereignty of God, is not an enemy of evangelistic zeal, but rather it is a very useful friend. And by that, I mean that every encounter that we have with every other human being during the course of our lives is a divine appointment. Now, some of those arrangements are permanent in nature. It's your sibling, it's your child, it's your parent. Some of those encounters are temporary, uh, like the person you would sit beside on the plane or the waitress at the Waffle House. Uh, Unless, of course, you marry the waitress at the Waffle House, then it would become permanent. But some are temporary, some are permanent, and everything in between. And not only are the encounters by design... But everything leading up to the encounter has a purpose as well. Your background, your interest, your experiences. You are always where you are because God directs your steps. And so I would say to you, with respect to evangelism, live in that awareness and view those with whom you have a confluence as being placed there by God. Do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that we should not be intentional in our evangelistic efforts. 
and simply wait for God to bring someone into our path. No, the Shunammite woman intentionally went. W-E-N-T, went to the king with a purpose. What I am saying, however, is that whether we intentionally go out evangelizing, and that is something we should do, or whether we are sitting beside our coworker on a normal day, which is also something that we should do, it is all part of God's plan. So live with the awareness that God directs the steps of his unsaved elect to converge with yours. And don't spend too much time or effort trying to figure out if these people are worthy candidates. Let me illustrate. I love going to sporting events, but even more than going to sporting events, I love to go to sporting events without tickets. Again, Peter LaRufa has no original material. I taught him this. You go without tickets, and I will try to get into the event by having someone give me a ticket. I will stand outside of the subway platform at New York, uh, outside the Met Stadium, and I'll say, I need one ticket. Does anybody have one? Scalpers will come up to me and say, hey, buddy, what do you want to pay? I'll say, I want a free ticket. You're never going to get a free ticket. Thank you very much. Does anybody have one? I need one. I need one. Thousands of people are passing before me. I don't look at the people and say, that guy looks like the kind of guy who might have an extra ticket. I ask everybody who walks by, and in every instance, I am always handed a free ticket, usually after just a few moments. What do I do? I give the message to everyone, and I believe that in Providence, the right person is going to pass by. People are in your life for a reason. And maybe that reason is that you are going to be one of the ones that God uses to give them the gospel. So accept the divine appointment and say something. Let me give you a crazy recent example of how providence was used in evangelism. I have a friend, and he actually is a friend. I've been trying to witness to him for years. I've been trying to invite him to church for years. He lives in another state. Um, He is a Jewish man. He is, uh, in his entire life, a professed atheist. He is a heroin addict. And earlier this year, he became homeless and was hit by a car. And so he was put in the hospital. He was put in the hospital to detox from the heroin and to help with the injury that he sustained by being hit by a car. When they put him into the hospital, they took away his clothes because they were unwearable. They were not fit to wear. And so all he had was the hospital gown. As he is in the hospital, he has a nurse. The nurse is not a Christian. As the man is finally ready to be released from the hospital to the rehab center, it it, it occurs to everybody he doesn't have any clothes. And she goes to her parents, friends, to a man who is roughly the same size as this man and says, do you have anything that I could give to this man? And he gives some clothes and the man leaves the hospital and he goes to the rehab center and he he calls me up and he tells me his story of where he is and happens to be that the town where he is now in, it's in another state, that I know some people there. I know some people that are Christians. And so I send out a group text to about 16 people and I say, you don't know this man, but he's in a rehab center. Here's his story. Would somebody please go and love him, take the gospel to him, uh, pray with him, uh, just try in some way. I've been trying to reach this guy for years. One of the ladies texts back in this group text and says, after hearing the man's name, my daughter 
is a nurse at the hospital. She has been taking care of him for the past several weeks. She's not a Christian, but she loves this man. And she's the one who asked Chris to give him some clothes. Chris is a part of the group text. And he sends back a text and he says, I'm on my way to the rehab center right now. I don't know the man. I don't know what he looks like. I'll just go in and look for the guy who's wearing my clothes. (laughs) True story. These 16 people worked very hard, loving this man, praying for this man, very explicitly giving him the gospel. And from all outward indicators, this is going back four months, this man is now a believer in Christ. He's still Jewish. He's not an atheist anymore, and he is no longer a heroin addict. He's in church every week. He has professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And one of the things that baffled him through it all was what are the chances, what are the mathematical odds that the people that you know would know someone who would come and give me clothes and would bring the word of God to me. Providence is a friend to evangelism. Accept your divine appointments. Here is point number two. And that is that our glorious message is communicated most effectively in the context of pain. Our glorious message is communicated most effectively in the context of pain. What is the greatest pain that the Shunammite woman ever experienced? Well, it was that her son died. I I don't even want to meditate on that too long. I don't want to think about that. I can't imagine how she felt as she walked those 16 miles from Shunam to um, Mount Carmel. And then as she walked back with Elisha and her son being dead. The pain that she must have felt, I don't even want to try to think about it. But it was that pain that ultimately led to her son being raised from the dead. Because if he hadn't have died, he wouldn't have been raised to life. And if he hadn't been raised to life, when the woman came in and interrupted the conversation between Gehazi and the king, the king, first of all, probably would have chastised her for interrupting the meeting. But even if he would have spoken to her, best case scenario, he would have said to her, who are you? We've just had a seven-year drought. Things are tough all over. Get get in line. I can't help you, ma'am. But the reason why the king was willing to listen to her is because of the pain that she had gone through and how there was a restoration of life from that. Pain was a necessary ingredient for her to have a viable audience with the king. And I want to say to you, I don't know what pain you are going through, but I know because you live in this broken, fallen world, you are going through some kind of pain. And it's not meaningless. It is for a purpose. Consider the story of Joseph. If Joseph is not the favorite, then he is not hated by his brothers. If he isn't hated by his brothers, then he doesn't get sold into slavery. If he doesn't get sold into slavery, then he doesn't meet Potiphar. If he doesn't meet Potiphar, then he doesn't meet Potiphar's wife. If he doesn't meet Potiphar's wife, he doesn't get accused of rape. If he doesn't get accused of rape, he doesn't go to prison. If he doesn't go to prison, he doesn't meet the cupbearer to the king. If he doesn't meet the cupbearer to the king, he doesn't interpret the king's dream. If he doesn't interpret the king's dream, then they don't know to save the produce of the land during the good years. And if they don't do that, then everybody in that region dies. And if everybody in that region dies, then his family dies. 
dies, and if his family dies, then his brother Judah dies. And if his brother Judah dies, then there is no King David. And if there's no King David, then there's no King David's greater son. And if there's no King David's greater son, there is no Jesus Christ. And if there is no Jesus Christ, you are going to hell, and so am I. And so... If we look at any isolated part of the life of Joseph, we see great pain and we can say it's meaningless. But when we get in our Romans 8.28 helicopter and lift off, then we look at the fact that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, including the pain, then we can say with Joseph, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, as it is this day, to save many people alive. And Joseph didn't even know what he himself was saying at the time, because you and I are the ones who are being saved alive as a result of this. And what was it that brought that about? It was pain. Pain was a necessary ingredient in the design of God in the story of the Shunammite woman. And I want to say to you concerning your pain, that if you process it biblically, by that I mean you come to the conclusion that our God is sovereign and whatever our God ordains is right, then you are going to become more sympathetic as an evangelist. You are going to be more empathetic and sensitive and understanding and compassionate. You're going to have more endurance and more patience. You're going to draw closer to God and you're going to be a more effective evangelist. The pain you experience today is going to make you a better evangelist tomorrow. What was the greatest pain that the world has ever known? Was it not on Mount Calvary where the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, took upon himself the sins of God's people and his visage was marred more than any man? In other words, Isaiah says, when they got done pulverizing Jesus, he didn't even look like a human being. He bore in his body our sins upon the tree, Uh, Allow me in providence right now, providentially you are here today, some of you are not Christians, I providentially would like to evangelize you right now. I'm not just going to tell the others about evangelism, but I'm going to evangelize you and say that that pain is your salvation. Because your sins were transferred to Jesus Christ. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The pain and the punishment that I deserve was endured by Jesus on the cross. And because of that pain, you can be forgiven. You can be restored to a right relationship with God. If you come to the end of yourself and admit that you are an empty sinner and believe that Jesus died in your place and repent from your sins... Your relationship with God can be eternally restored. For whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, our glorious message is not only communicated most effectively in the context of pain, but our glorious message is pain itself. It is the pain that Christ endured in dying for our sins so that we might go free. And finally, our glorious message must be accompanied with a demonstration of divine power. Our glorious message must be accompanied with a demonstration of divine power, specifically the power of a risen son. You see, the reason why the king was willing to restore her property was because her previously dead son was now alive and standing at her side. Let me explain this to you in closing, both objectively and subjectively. Follow the argument objectively. If a wicked king 
hearing the testimony of a leprous, defrocked clergyman, was willing to grant total restoration to a woman that he did not know, based upon a boy who was dead and is now alive, but a boy who would eventually die again, if he would grant total restoration based upon that, how much more... Will a loving, eternal, good, intentional God grant ultimate restoration to his elect when he sees his perfect eternal son standing by our side, a son who was dead and is now alive but will be alive forevermore? In other words, before the throne of God above, I have a sure and perfect plea. What is it? It is Jesus Christ. King Jehoram was not looking at the merits of the Shunammite woman. He was looking at her risen son. And each of us one day will stand before God to be judged. And I hope that he is not looking at me. For if he is looking at me in my merits, I will be eternally damned. But there will be one standing beside me, and that is a risen son. A risen son who paid for my sins... And came back to life and now is my advocate before the throne. And the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is what will grant me eternal, eternal restoration. You say, what in the world does that have to do with evangelism? Well, let me move from the objective now to the subjective. And that is that this has everything, everything, everything in the world to do with evangelism. And that is that if there is going to be in our, we we have a providential meeting with someone, we speak the gospel to them, what is it that is going to bring them to life? If there is going to be a salvation, if there's going to be a new birth, if there's going to be a, 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 a regeneration, a convert, if there's going to be this restoration that I'm talking about at the end of the day, it is 100% contingent upon the work and the power of the Holy Spirit to raise the dead sinner to life. You see, effective evangelism is not your persuasiveness. And it's not your, your, your preparation. It's not your clever argument. It's not your hospitality. It is not your burden for the lost. It, it is not even your faithfulness. But it is God doing something that only God can do. It's God taking the objective message of the gospel and using it subjectively to raise the dead to life. Opening eyes, opening hearts, raising the dead. Showing people their sin. You can tell people that they are sinners. You can show them in the Bible. You can demonstrate it from things that they do in their lives. You you can show the beauty of Jesus Christ by reading these Bible verses to these people. You, You can tell them about grace. You can talk to them about the objective facts of Jesus dying for our sins and the resurrection. You can point to other Christians how their lives have been vastly improved by the uh, work of Christ in their lives. You can talk about the relief from guilt. You can talk about all of the benefits. You can talk about the horrors of hell. You can do it with tears. You can, you can jump up and down. You can physically grab a hold of their shoulders and you can shake them. But at the end of the day, they are not going to come to life unless God sovereignly opens their eyes and breathes life into them through his Holy Spirit. But when he does do that, I want to tell you, it is a beautiful thing. When you accept your providential encounters that you have with other people, when you preach the gospel of the the good news of Jesus Christ to people, and then you see God bring them to life right before your very eyes. 
It's through the proclamation that Jesus died for our sins and was raised to life. So, church matters. And a good church, a healthy church, is going to be involved in evangelism. You're going to leave here today. You're going to encounter people throughout the week. Please keep in your mind that those people are there because God has put them there. Speak the good news of the gospel, and if God is willing, he will raise them to life. Father in heaven, I thank you for this privilege, this opportunity, this joy that I have had to speak to this wonderful congregation. I thank you, Lord, for their attentiveness. Uh, But Lord, I pray that the attentiveness would not end here. I pray that as they leave here today, that they would not only be in agreement with the message, but Lord, I pray that they would act upon the message. And Lord, may we see a large harvest of souls in this place for your glory and for the glory of your great Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.